Hello and welcome to Made Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Jeff Schulenberger. He's an academic and managing editor at Compact Magazine. And today we discussed an essay that Jeff published recently on Compact about Bronze Age perverts and his uh, his first book, Bronze Age Mindset, uh, which was published quite a few years ago and, and had this kind of rippling effect on the American right. And also his latest book, um, written under his real name, Costin Alamario. I thought that our whole episode on that was appropriate because he's a very influential figure. He's an internet celebrity and his writings on sexual politics are both interesting and influential. So um, we went into great detail about it, including into the extended part of the episode where we spoke about Bap's writing on race and on intelligence and on whether or not his idea of uh, aristocratic virtues really maps onto reality in um, a highly technologically sophisticated and affluent culture. That extended episode can be found at louiseperry.substack.com, where, as ever, you can also find uh, bonus episodes, the whole back catalogue, and the MLN chat community. Enjoy. So, Jeff, you have recently written this piece for Compact, um, which I loved, on Bronze Age perverts. Who um, I I don't know if all listeners are going to be familiar with him. I imagine quite a lot of listeners will be familiar with him because he's this. Um, he's like an internet celebrity. I think is probably the best way of describing him. Yeah. So he published his first book in 2018 under the Bronze Age pervert byline, which is called Bronze Age Mindset. So it's clearly an echo, I think, of of various, you know, the title hints at various sort of previous self-help books directed at men. I believe that the most immediate predecessor would be Gorilla Mindset. Uh, So it kind of comes out of this manosphere that had been emerging on the internet for a couple of decades, really, uh, which, you know, really did... Uh, it cultivated a kind of self-help culture for men, you know, how to um, how to be strong, dominant. Um, and, you know, it, it appealed to men who felt like they were sort of sexually unsuccessful, losing out in the sexual marketplace. And so there's a lot of overlap with like the incel sphere. And uh, so, you know, this book, I think that's kind of the niche in which it appeared. Um, but. What was notable about it, first of all, was, it, I mean, it had this this kind of extremely um, uh, <laughs> bizarre persona attached to it who speaks in this sort of fake caveman talk and sort of misspells everything. And this is true of Bronze Age Pervert's Twitter account, but also of, of the book. There are all of these, obviously, you know, because as we'll get to, we know that this is a person with a PhD from Yale. So there are all these deliberate misspellings um, and this this cultivation of this kind of, um, and I'd say it's it's somewhere between this kind of like, yeah, grunting caveman persona and this kind of, um, you know, he, his podcast persona, because he also has a podcast, is, is almost like a sort of Borat um, character. Um, he has this kind of vague Eastern European accent. Right, yes. Yeah. Um, with lots of internet slang as well. Exactly. And so he he appears on Twitter, he publishes this book, he starts this podcast, and 
you know, the, the, the basic, uh, I, I suppose, novelty of, of his approach to this sort of manosphere thing is to kind of exalt and idealize. Um, and this relates to the kind of, you know, grunting caveman aspect of thing, you know, the, the ancient cultures of the Bronze Age and, um, you know, specifically this this notion of, of kind of the Indo-European or sort of Aryan uh, barbarian conquerors who came in and sort of subjugated all of these peoples and that, you know, ultimately the roots of, of the sort of great cultures of the ancient Mediterranean, Greece and Rome are, are in these kind of barbaric male conquerors. And so, you know, in order to kind of achieve greatness as a man, you have to kind of summon up your inner barbarian. And so it, you know, it, it's, um, and it's, it's also this kind of, uh, you know, in Bronze Age mindset is, it's clearly a kind of, it's also kind of Nietzsche fanfic. Uh, it's it's sometimes it's it's written in this kind of sometimes aphoristic and kind of fragmentary style of some of Nietzsche's works, and the themes of it, you know, again the the kind of need to um, to recover this kind of pagan drive for for greatness and glory are, are sort of a, a a sort of popularized version of of certain you know Nietzschean ideas. Um, you know the the perspective it gives on ancient Greek culture as this kind of place where this, uh, you know, violence and barbarity kind of uh, it paradoxically gives rise to this kind of culture of beauty and um, of, of sort of uh, exalted aesthetic forms. And, and then the other interesting thing about this is there's a kind of strong homoerotic current of a lot of this where, you know, a lot of the uh, posts are, are uh, you know, are, are actually beautiful young men, you know, and I mean, it, sort of along, you know, the, these sort of statuesque, uh, you know, muscular men who kind of resemble ancient Greek statuary. And, and so that's, um, that's kind of the aesthetic and the, the basic ideas around it. Yeah, so it, it's, it's also tied to the sort of broader alt-right sphere that's emerged kind of around 2016 and to this realm known as Frog Twitter, which is, uh, you know, associated with the Pepe, the sort of Pepe the Frog and, and the Groiper figure, although there ends up being a kind of enmity between the Groipers and the, the Bap <laughs> fandom, which is a whole other story. But, you know, it's it's tied to this kind of chaotic, ludic kind of um, subculture of, of anonymous young men on the internet who are, you know, devoted to shitposting and to this kind of, you know, this these... Uh, you know, racism and misogyny, which are always kind of coded in enough irony to provide a certain plausible deniability. Um, although, you know, I, as, as we may get to, I, I don't think there's really that much irony. I mean, I, th I think these are actually, um, you know, more or less reflections of what what this subculture uh, believes insofar as they believe anything. To his credit, I would say that the um, BAPS style is very is very well done like in the, the 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 caveman sort of voice that we've described the hammed up accent this kind of deliberately a little bit clownish but also but but I think one of the reasons that's so successful is not only because it means that there's a real selection barrier in, t in terms of who's going to pick up the book I mean I'll say that I bought this book uh, ages ago, probably not long after it was published, because Mary Harrington <laughs> encouraged me to do so. 
and I picked it up and was like, "This is this is this is crazy." I was like, <laughs> "What is this shit?" Like, I I I failed the I failed the filter. Um, mm-hmm. So it partly has that function, and it partly also has the function of of allowing you to disguise sincerely reactionary ideas behind a kind of ironic um, facade. Yeah, which is yeah, which is clever, including including the fans. Right, the fans can claim to be fans of the of the humor. Yeah, I agreed. And and I, I mean, I've had my own sort of evolution about how to think about this. And I still, you know, I, I, th- there's some kind of deeper philosophical question of belief and like what belief is and, and, you know, wh- what it means to actually believe something versus to kind of perform believing it, which I think has become a more tricky question in the in the internet age, just more broadly. Mm. And so I think, you know, when sort of back in the 26th, sort of 2016 period when you know this this stuff was first being commented on and and a lot of it was sort of like oh you know don't believe the you know the sort of standard mainstream commentary was like don't believe the irony these people are just actual bigots and they're trying to trick you into you know thinking it's just a joke but actually it's it's this kind of clever scheme to you know make people actually believe this stuff i mean i suppose you know the the one level on which i'd say you know, on one hand, it's like clear to me because I interact with I've interacted with these people quite a bit or, you know, with people within this world of, of sort of since of, of devotees of of Bronze Age pervert and related people is like they do get extremely impassioned about, you know, their sort of beliefs in racial hierarchy and things like that. And, you know, it's it's very easy to get them to reveal that they seem to be very serious about this. Um just by like provoking them ever so little, they will really, um, they will really insist and, and make clear that they're pretty committed to these ideas, like that they're not just messing around. At the same time, I sort of find, you know, maybe the level at which belief isn't really operative here is that it doesn't, I'm not sure what it actually translates into. I think a lot of it is, is ultimately devoted to this kind of feedback loop of offending people provoking a reaction and there and thereby kind of gaining a certain clout but mm. it, it it often doesn't seem to um translate to that much beyond that i guess my broader point is um i you know they, they they're very passionately devoted to their ideas um but i'm not i'm still not sure what it actually adds up to um mm. other than just you know again being involved in this this kind of constant feedback loop where in a sense they are they're necessary kind of to provide this uh, menace that, you know, the kind of centrist establishment can point to. And, and that at the same time, they, they kind of only seem to gain their meaning by being, um, by being identified as this uh, sort of dangerous menace, right? Which they, which they relish in a sense. Yeah, it's not like Bapism has a sort of clear policy platform. It's not like a serious faction in that sense. But it is a very strong vibe, and you yes. know, I I think that I think he actually does that to 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 defend Bap again. I think he actually does that very well. I actually found myself when I I read Bronze Bronze Age Mindset in full um, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I found myself dreaming about it <laughs> unexpectedly. <laughs> like it's 
his ability to sort of conjure up a particular image of the past yeah and a particular uh, i guess kind of lens through which to view the world mm-hmm. is very accomplished and it and the, yeah. and the whole aesthetic you know yes it's partly uh you know deliberately it's partly a joke handsome mm-hmm. thursdays you know posting buff pictures yeah. of young men yeah um, but he does also have this like surprisingly endearing um, attitude towards animals, yeah, like the beauty and nobility of animals, and 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 he's kind of an aesthete, right? Yeah. He just mm-hmm. he loves beautiful things and yeah. puts that at the heart of his politics as well. That that sort of the defense of beauty is essential to it, and you and I and I can I can see. I mean, part of the reason I think that I didn't initially pay much. Um, attention to any of this is because it's not really aimed at me it's not really aimed at women yeah um which is probably why I was kind of dull to it but I can see why it would seem to be a very attractive political vibe Mm -hmm. if you are a young man even if it doesn't have an enormous amount of kind of substance to it or I mean and maybe we should get onto this or if the substance is deeply sinister (laughs) which yeah in some respects it probably is yeah no, I, I mean, I think I think there's I, I can sort of see both uh, both answers to that. I, I think there's a way in which it's it's ultimately quite vacuous, but also a way in which it is quite dark. But um, you know, I, going back to your point about dreams, I mean, it is it's a myth, you know, and this is kind of getting into my recent piece a little bit. Um, you know, it is a myth making project, right, and and explicitly so. And I think it is quite—it's quite successful at at that at kind of uh, forging this this usable mythology, um, you know that that may, that seems to help people make sense of their lives and um, you know you you and and do so in a way that that sort of grounds it in in history and you know whether I mean to some extent real and to some extent sort of fabricated history mm. and. So I think that is that is sort of its its potency. Um, the uh, the piece I wrote was was more inspired by his se- the second uh, publication, although you know his first uh, public his first book published under his real name, which is Kostin Alamariu, and um, the, the book that came out a few weeks ago and immediately became a bestseller on Amazon is um, is called Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy. And it's a dissertation that Alamariu uh, wrote and and submitted at Yale prior to uh, sort of taking on his. I, I think he had he had started his Bronze Age pervert uh, persona by then. It was around 2015 that he completed his PhD, um, but he hadn't quite sort of shot to prominence yet at that point, um, and you know wouldn't publish Bronze Age mindset for a few more years. And, you know, so the book is the dissertation with a new introduction added to it. And it it's sort of published seemingly in response to a long piece by the um, Atlantic magazine journalist Graham Wood, who it turns out knew Alamariu, a.k.a. Bronze Age pervert, you know, for some decades prior to his his becoming BAP and, um, you know, was basically... <laughs> kind of uh, ref- realizing and, and reflecting on this this discovery um, that, that he had known this guy who sort of became this sort of far-right internet personality. 
And so we learn a little bit about his background, um, who he is, and so on from that piece. And it seems that in response to this, um, you know, and, and basically everybody kind of knew who Bap was prior to that, but it, it seemed to provide the fullest confirmation, um, as well as a kind of timeline. And it seemed to be in response to that that he published his dissertation, which had sort of been, I mean, my friend uh, Blake Smith had written a piece about the dissertation some months ago prior to its publication. So like some people had read and commented on it just by pulling up the, the file from the Yale, you know, dissertation, online dissertation vault or whatever. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a remarkable book. Uh, and I, I definitely found myself, you know, sort of captivated by it. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, unusually lucid and, and, you know, extremely striking in its thesis. And so, you know, I, I felt like, um, I, I, I was grabbed immediately by it and, and felt like I had to write something about it. Um, so, you know, in many ways, it, it, it reflects these themes and interests of the BAP persona and the, the, and, and that also make their way into Bronze Age mindset. But basically, um, it's, you know, going back to this notion that uh, Greek, ancient Greek culture emerges out of this, this conquest by these kind of steppe barbarians of these more sedentary uh, Mediterranean societies. And that, you know, it's, it's through this, this kind of matrix that various things we associate with ancient Greek culture are, are sort of uh, forged among them, the, the rise of philosophy itself. And so that's, I'd, I'd say, um, you know, a, a, a thesis that, um, that, you know, it, it, it goes beyond what's already in Bronze Age mindset and, and was already kind of articulated by the, the bad persona. And it's, uh, it's quite a, you know, and, and again, as I said, Bronze Age mindset is a kind of Nietzsche fanfic. This is basically, it's fundamentally a work of scholarship that, that tries to kind of elucidate certain ideas that Nietzsche developed, but, but perhaps didn't fully, uh, didn't fully articulate or, or take to their full conclusions. Mm. Um, I thought that the, um, the Graham Wood Atlantic essay was very good. Um, that, that, I mean, there's, BAP has been, um, discussed in, um, mainstream and, and progressive media for a while now um normally in a slightly pearl clutchy way um i thought the wood piece though is actually quite fair and interesting um and yes includes a lot of this biographical stuff about um alamari which wasn't was maybe rumored but wasn't really in the public domain um like the fact that he really is a he really is a philosophy phd which I think is kind of clear from his writing, yeah. um, despite the caveman style. You can tell that this is written by someone who's very familiar with um, classical philosophy. Yeah. Um, and uh, and also that he's now, am I right, a slightly sort of itinerant... Well, one of the things that he tweets about quite often is is um, e- the expat lifestyle. You know, yeah. The fact that it is... He, he recommends being somewhat itinerant, sort of resisting being drained of your resources by parasitic governments. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and the yeah. way that you can do that is to, is to live overseas. Um, 
And, and I mean, the thing that's kind of funny when you know about Alamaru's real lifestyle is it is extremely dissimilar from that of the Bronze Age warrior, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I, as far as I know, he's never suffered any particular physical peril of any kind. Yeah. He's, a, he's a bodybuilder, so he, he looks the part. Um, but he actually lives exactly the kind of laptop class lifestyle that the rest of us do. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, just with this kind of elaborate, uh, he, li- he lives it in the life of the mind, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, and, and to me, I mean, maybe what he would say to that is, um, you know, all that one can do in this, in our contemporary culture is to LARP. Yeah. Like that's the sort of, that's the tragic fate of, contemporary man that you can't live the bronze age warrior life you have to um you have to live the bug man life as he calls it yeah which which is some which is one place where i find this whole culture somewhat disingenuous um like if if they actually believe these things there are plenty of op- and this is like you know just to give one example on <laughs> if if they really believe in the warrior life um i'm sorry but <laughs> Even, you know, and I have no great admiration for like the anarchist sort of Occupy left, but, you know, that that was a, sub, a political subculture that sent a, you know, reasonable number of people to like actually fight in the Kurdish area of Syria, like actually like go into battle against ISIS. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, there are there are people from the right who who joined those battles as well. And of course, there are also like volunteer brigades in, you know, on both sides of the Ukraine war mm. that have attracted some sort of far right figures, um, again, on both sides. And as far as I know, nobody from this realm is is actually actively encouraging people to do that. Um, mm. And, you know, the other thing I found, and this kind of goes back to my point about belief, like what, what does it actually mean to believe this? Um, you know, it. it it, it's it's also interesting, you know, another hit of his themes that it comes up in Bronze Age Mindset and he'll post about it occasionally are, you know, these kind of mercen basically these like white mercenaries in Africa. They're, um, the, the names are slipping my mind, but there are a couple of these figures who are, you know, essentially white sort of guns for hire who went and, you know, participated in various African, mm. um, uh, you know, civil conflicts in the 20th century and so on. And these are kind of, again, these are other exemplars of the kind of, you know, Bronze Age mindset in the, the modern era. Mm, the and so again, I don't see him yeah. or his, uh, <laughs> or, or, or anybody in his world, like actively encouraging anybody to do those sorts of things. I mean, they sort of idealize it, but um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to add up to much. And so as, as you say, it, it ends up being a kind of, um, you know, a, 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 another bugman lifestyle that that is, you know, entirely sustained by the fantasy of, of not being that, but but nevertheless, in objective terms, is that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, another thing that Bat writes about um, often, and actually, I think pretty much concludes Bronze Age mindset with, is um, his ambivalence about fatherhood, mm. um, and he does not have children, I don't think. He's in what well, his early forties, something Sorry, like that. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, he says at the end, you know, you can go off and have a family if you want to, I guess, to his sort of imagined reader, but 
there's a good, pretty good like, like there's a pretty good chance that it will kind of drain you of your vitality mm-hmm. and also it's not the sort of because of course there's another faction of the right who sees um uh demography is an important cultural battleground yeah um he says you know that that's that's a fruitless endeavor basically um and he ends up well okay so the, so the, the criticism that i actually um think is kind of the strongest against bath is that he's kind of just a liberal individualist yeah with a with a distinctive aesthetic mm-hmm. like certainly in terms of how he the, the the lifestyle that he apparently lives and indeed many of the people in this in this subculture as you describe you know basically very sort of cosmopolitan laptop class stuff um and also in terms of his his valorization of the kind of the the the, the pirate the nomad the unattached um yes hypermasculine but also oddly sterile kind of male figure i don't know to me i just feel as if the the, the what bap is proposing is being a weird kind of way just the this kind of the counterpart to almost the sex and the city lifestyle for women mm-hmm. yeah you know <laughs> the like hyper glamorous very visually satisfying um life of the like individual fantasist yeah no i mean that well, and this I'd say ties into part of my argument in um, in the piece I wrote, which is that you know there is a and the, you know I'd say perhaps the the kind of intermediary figure here, which ties into your point about liberal individualism, is is Camille Paglia, right? Who he, mm. who he cites um, extensively in, mm-hmm. in various contexts, and who was clearly a big influence herself, a Yale PhD, um, uh, yeah, and yeah. and who who sort of uh, you know who's clearly and an openly a liberal individualist, right? That's, uh, you know, she's never claimed to be anything other than that. Mm. And, you know, she, um, her, her sort of emphasis on aesthetics, um, you know, her, her sort of uh, exaltation of, of paganism. I mean, all these things are, are, are things that he, that he clearly kind of, I mean, he, I, I not necessarily learned from her. Um, I'd say both of them were, you know, drawing on Nietzsche and other kind of prior figures, but, you know, she, she was a sort of more recent exemplar of a lot of these values. And, and for her, it does translate into liberal individualism mm. straightforwardly. But, you know, the, that, the, the other thing, I mean, going to your point about that, that, that this is a kind of counterpart to certain things you see in, in sort of, you know, culture directed at women. I mean, going back to this, this comes out of this kind of self-help culture of the male sort of online right, mm. which is itself an interesting kind of, um, you know, it, it's clearly men kind of create and often doing it through kind of self-publishing because, you know, the, the, um, the publishing industry and the media isn't sort of catering to them as much. So they're often doing it by creating their own, sort of media ecosystem but you know in a sense kind of and i mean you could even sort of say like if if you look into the kind of lifestyle fads of this world you know it's uh uh, slunking raw eggs and things like that you know there's plenty of um echoes of like goop and stuff like that right (laughs) yes um and and these these sort of lifestyle crazes yeah i know right Uh, but these sort of lifestyle crazes are 
you know, they're, they're a mainstay of the, the kind of older, you know, sort of pop feminist self-help world. And, and they're also a mainstay of this world. And then, you know, the other point I make is that in terms of his kind of, uh, the kind of historical mythology that he develops, you know, what I argue is that, you know, the basic, um, the basic kind of narrative that he offers is, is really identical to one that was very popular in, among seven, among feminists in the seventies and eighties, right. Which is this idea that actually the original cultures were matriarchal. Mm. And, you know, so for feminists, this could be like, Oh, we can recover this, you know, previous, um, you know, type of social regime in which women had much more power and autonomy and, and, you know, were revered and had more prestige and so on. Um, so for, for Bap, you know, he accepts this basic premise, which comes out of sort of German uh, 19th century anthropology is initially kind of appropriated by feminists as this kind of positive myth of like, you know, women once uh, were at the top of the social pyramid and we can be again. Um, so for Bap, it's basically the same idea, right? That, that women, uh, you know, originally kind of dominated the, the first societies and then you know, th th this is the, this notion of the longhouse, right? Um, mm. That th these kind of more collectivist and egalitarian societies. And again, you find versions of this in all kinds of left-wing anthropology and and sort of social theory that, you know, basically the, the earliest and most, um, the, the, the kind of earliest and most primitive or sort of primordial societies were, were egalitarian, were, um, you know, dominated by kind of feminine values and so on. And then, you know, these kind of step barbarians, um, immer, you know, kind of arrive and, and subjugate these, these more peaceful cultures and introduce all these bad, from the left wing perspective, all these bad things like hierarchy, war, um, you know, slavery, et cetera. And so that basically accepts this whole narrative, right? But he says, you know, the only way that culture evolved into something that, that produced beauty and, and higher things like philosophy and so on is through this process of, of these these step barbarians arriving, subjugating these kind of ultimately, um, you know, th these uh, these um, ultimately kind of stagnant cultures mm. dominated by women, and um, you know, introducing hierarchy and uh, introducing a sense of of sort of striving for higher things, right? And so mm. that's sort of the. The, the narrative that he he take you know he just takes this same narrative that's used by feminists as kind of a, a mythology of how we can you know make the future female or whatever and he just turns it on its head right and says no actually the you know the present ha is too female dominated right we've already reverted to this kind of stagnant life of of collectivism and um, you know f female domination and you know that. <laughs> that basically we have to, you know, return to this sort of barbaric uh, violence in order to overturn this um, ultimate, this sort of suffocating female-dominated order and and enable you know high thing higher things to once again be possible. Yeah, he basically takes the feminist pop anthropology and attempts at, like transvaluation in yeah. Nietzschean terms. It occurred to me recently that. Um, I wonder if you'll agree with me on this, that the 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 the, the easiest visual way of summarizing transvaluation as an idea is through the Nordic gamer yes meme. Mm. 
Right, where you, right, right, yeah, yeah, right. You look at something, a leftist analysis of something and say, I agree with your analysis, but I think it's a good thing. Yes, right. Yeah, so that's what that's done. Yeah, and you intimate, and I agree with you, that actually neither of those, neither the feminist nor the, the Bapian analysis of anthropological history is really accurate. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, you know, the, the, there's sort of something to this notion that, um, you know, that, that, that these sort of Indo-European invasions did happen, it would seem, you know, based on the, the sort of uh, genetic evidence and various mm. kinds of evidence. But it's very, you know, I, I, as I was going through BAP's, uh, you know, dissertation, um, you know, the, the problem is, and I, I wrote a critique of this left, this book by David Graeber and David Wengrow, mm. sort of left-wing anthropologists and archaeologists, where, you know, there, it's, the point is, it's very, it's actually quite difficult to extrapolate things about social structure based on physical evidence. <laughs> mm. It's quite, it's quite hard to do that, right? And, and so if you look at some of the critiques of feminist archaeology from the, that, that was very popular in the 70s and 80s, where they would be like, oh, look, you know, look at all these kind of, um, you know, uh, all this iconography of like fertility goddesses and so on. This must mean that this was a, you know, a, a matriarchal or female dominated culture. The thing is that that's just not really true, right? It's, no, why would that be true? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so you, it's... And and so if you read this Graeber and Wengro book, which you know tries to do this in in great detail and covers a huge amount of archaeological evidence, and and these guys are not you know they're 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 on one hand they have their political agenda, but you know they have to be honest that you can only you can only, at a certain point you end up just speculating. And so the point is like yes, some some kind of Indo-European invasion happened. Um, it did bring about shifts in the social structure. Um, and you know that all that is is true, but then you know both the feminists in the earlier period and this sort of this new kind of masculinist version are are obviously speculating and extrapolating a great deal on top of that again in order to kind of create these these political myths that are useful for trying to understand the present and figure out how to kind of act politically in the present. Yeah, it's I I find it. Um... Slightly uh, unexpected that the argument that BAP would make against our feminized contemporary culture is to say that this is in some sense the historical norm, or at least mm -hmm. very common historical pattern yeah. um, set against the um, the high cultures that he idealizes of Greece and Rome. Because actually, I think, I mean, like for better or worse. I think the, the feminists were wrong to ever think that there were these really... I mean, clearly there's variation in the sort of ferocity of patriarchy um, across time and place, but I think the existence of matriarchies is um, um, not really viable. Um, yeah. And so the idea that we... That, I mean, I think like the, 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 the stronger historical claim is actually that we are living in an unprecedentedly non-patriarchal culture right and that the degree to which women are currently in positions of power and influence is is unique mm -hmm. quite possibly and that's no I mean and that in a, like and actually to say that is obviously feminists would say yes and that's a good thing but in a way that could might, would be on stronger footing to say 
this is so historically unprecedented, there must be something suspect about it, rather than to have this kind of eternal longhouse. We should explain what the longhouse is um, to anyone who's not come across this idea. Um, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, it's the the idea that, yes, in these kind of settled pre-Bronze Age societies where women dominate, you have communities gathering in literally a longhouse, you know, a long building, um, within which the kind of the 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 women particularly the older women hold sway and all these young vigorous men are controlled and um suppressed yeah yeah and that culturally we we have the same effect now yeah i think that's yeah that's roughly the idea um you know i, th I and it's worth noting, you know, he does in the dissertation. So it's very clear if, if you read Bronze Age Mindset and his sort of popular output, it's very clear that he wants to represent these kind of, you know, these kind of uh, um, primordial cultures as sort of gynocratic, right? As, mm -hmm. as female dominated. Um, you know, he there's some line in Bronze Age Mind. I mean, his language is often very funny, right? He's like, um, he's like, you know, actually, uh, you know, most ancient societies were no different than today. You know, they were dominated by like fat nutso mammies who uh, taught everyone to be feminists and socialists or something like that. So it's like, that's basically is, you know, and so he says various things like this often, right? He writes really well. I, I mean, I, I don't, I, 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 to be clear to anyone listening, like I'm not like slating him. I actually think he's a very interesting writer. Yeah, and, and it's often very funny, you know. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, um, yeah. His prose is and, great. Yeah, and 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 as I said, his dissertation is, you know, it's it's uh, extremely uh, lucidly written. Not um, true for you know, most far dissertations. More so, yeah, <laughs> than most <laughs> academic prose. Yes. So and but you know so it's true, and I sort of got into this with a few of his fans on Twitter after I wrote about it, which it's true that he doesn't emphasize the gynocratic dimension of it so much in the dissertation. What he emphasizes is he does use the term gynogerontocracy. What he emphasizes is, but, but only once, um, what he emphasizes is the rule of the old, mm -hmm. um, that, and, and the rule of custom, right. That, that basically in, in these sort of more traditional societies, um, you know, what, what is, uh, what dominates is is you know the the elders right the kind of council of elders and the um, you know the the nomos the uh, the sort of uh, custom and culture of the the uh, the society right and so in in a sense what he's trying to do in the and and you know you could see how okay well it this kind of ties into you know, various kinds of feminist narratives you might find, right, and, and sort of echoes it, you know, that, that sort of women are the, the ones who, you know, kind of sustain culture and, um, you know, uh, sort of, uh, you know, sustain a kind of collective set of practices and so on across generations. But, you know, the point is that um, he, he doesn't, and, and I think this is because his dissertation advisors would have probably not taken it seri seriously if if he mm. said, oh, these were gynocracies or these were, you know, women, these were like feminist socialist societies. Um, mm. So instead he puts it in this terms of these are societies in which 
customs dominate and therefore the the you know those who are naturally superior right through their sheer kind of physical and intellectual endowments are sort of suppressed within this world because what is valued is custom rather than nature in other words rather than kind of um you know the 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 natural superiority of of the few mm-hmm. um and so you know so so the dissertation argues that basically the 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 birth of philosophy comes out of this process of how you know the, this this tension between nomos the between uh, inherited custom and and sort of the council of el- the rule of the council of elders and so on and these kind of you know the persistent um you know superiority of this kind of warrior race of you know of of sort of the descendants of step of the step barbarians right who have kind of been you know through this selective process in part through war of like you know, selecting for the the strongest and the the wiliest of them have kind of been been bred into this um, this kind of super race within the within the society, and yet you know the 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 society con- continually demands to kind of um, cut them down to size, mm. and so you know this is this is sort of the argument, right? That the philosophy and the discovery of nature as an independent principle, in other words, the idea that there are laws that exceed any you know, particular uh, beliefs or customs of a given community that are universal sort of comes out, he argues, of this this kind of emergent self-consciousness of these these sort of embattled um, superior beings within these societies, right, that are that are sort of trying to to suppress their greatness. And so that's, you know, that's more or less the argument. Again, he doesn't emphasize the feminine, the sort of um, Oh, these were sort of feminist egalitarian societies as much in the dissertation again because I think that part of it is sort of on less firm sort of scholarly ground but um but nevertheless it it's uh it's still this this idea that and and this is where you know I, I think this is also you know importantly where it ties into racialism and sort of race science um basically because the idea is that you know, the, these superior beings within, and, the, you know, the book is entitled Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy. So these kind of superior beings who have been generated through this, pro- this sort of eugenic process of selection, um, you know, c- come to be aware of themselves, you know, as, as sort of physically and intellectually superior and therefore kind of, um, you know, end- endowed with some sort of natural right to, to lord it over the the inferior beings that surround them um and that this you know that this process is the one that also gives birth to to uh philosophy itself and ultimately to to science more broadly he argues and his definition of this kind of aristocratic class of 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 people who are born with these elite capacities places a lot of emphasis on on beauty and on physical strength, um, yeah. which is, I suppose, one way in which he departs from, say, nineteenth-century um, writing on. Because I mean, in some ways, what he's doing there is feeding into an, an age-old age debate about who ought to rule. Yeah, and it's not uncommon for for people in more recent times to reach the conclusion that it's the. Uh, the cognitively gifted right intelligent and um 
prudent and all of these um, intellectual and, and moral qualities. Does he agree with that and just add on also strength and beauty? Or do you think he has a fundamentally different idea of what the aristocracy ought to, ought to be like? I mean, I, I think, and, you know, as I, you know, I, I haven't um, read the whole thing, but, you know, as, as you, uh, you sent me a piece that, that kind of um, shows the similarity of his, his ideas to, uh, you know, ideas that were pretty dominant among the kind of American uh, wasp elite a hundred years ago. Right. Mm, I can put this, I can put the link in the um, show notes for this one. Cause it's a really, it is a really interesting essay. I should say the the sort of standard. Well, there have been a lot of uh, a lot of commentators have responded to BAP in a lot of different ways. <laughs> like as we've discussed, sometimes pearl clutchy, yeah. and so forth. Um, a common view among conservatives who are less sympathetic to BAP is that he is um, departing from a more Christian conservatism, in that he is quite. Um, at best ambivalent about Christianity and that his ideas of this kind of very fundamental inequality between individuals are difficult to reconcile with a, um, with a Christian worldview. Yes. So the idea is sort of that BAP is like a, quite a, quite a, offers an abrupt and alarming diversion from what has until recently been considered mainstream conservatism, which is partly true. But the point that's made in this piece, which I think is is persuasive, is that actually many of the ideas in Bapism, you know, like militarism, um, masculine, masculinism, and, um, you know, as, like maybe, maybe Christianity, but definitely not of the really pious kind, were actually basically dominant in kind of American wasp culture up until maybe the 1960s and racial hierarchy, of course. Um, and so maybe BAP isn't a sudden departure from right-wing thought. Maybe he's actually returning to something that was dominant until fairly recently. Yeah. And I find this persuasive in part because I, I spent you know, many weekends of my childhood going to the uh, Museum of Natural History in New York City. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was created by and, it you know, it, in a way ties into the, the deep connection that that he identifies in the dissertation between science and, and eugenics and breeding more specifically. So I, I spent many weekends of my childhood going to the Museum of Natural History in New York City. Um, you know, I, I later learned that many of the names, uh, you know, for these sort of great halls and, um, you know, that you find on the sort of cornerstones of it were the names of, of prominent eugenicists, right? Figures who were involved, yeah. deeply involved in the eugenics movement. These were all WASP elites of the city, yeah. right? And, um, you know, this, uh, there's this quote, um, nature teaches law and order and respect for property. If these people cannot go to the country, and the museum must bring nature to the city. So, you know, this is kind of a statement of the, uh, this is uh, from a report to the trustees of the museum by Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was, you know, one of these, uh, you know, one of these uh, people deeply involved in, in eugenic sort of theorizing, who was, who was also involved in the creation of the museum. Now, what's, what's the other first thing you see when, when you go into the museum? It's basically a, 
I mean, actually, they, they removed it, <laughs> interestingly, but that there, there was a monument on the front steps to Teddy Roosevelt, mm. and they removed it because he was, um, he was flanked on each side by an, an African and a Native American, and, you know, sort of paternalistically standing above them. Mm. Um, and then if you go into the, the Great Hall, uh, when you enter the museum, there are these quotes from Teddy Roosevelt, which are all really, you know, about, uh, you know, it's, they're really kind of inspirational quotes for young men, right, about how you should go out and become robust and, uh, you know, uh, seek adventure and, and all these kinds of things, right? And so, you know, th this, this museum was a kind of pedagogical project of these wasp elites of the period. Now, you know, they, they, um, they, it was pedagogical insofar as they, they sort of thought, okay, the city was filling up with these teeming hordes of, of sort of immigrants of lower races. They did seem to have some kind of confidence that, that, you know, with the right approach, these people could sort of be managed if they could be, again, taught to respect sort of property hierarchy, et cetera. Um, but this museum basically is a kind of physical embodiment of this whole ideology, I think, that you're pointing to. Mm. And the other thing that, you know, I think that, that ties in here is, you know, Teddy, Ro well, I mean, an interesting point about Teddy Roosevelt is he was, he was a sickly young man, right? And then he kind of recovered his health by, you know, going out and, and seeking adventure and so on, right? And so the, the sort of struggle against decadence um, in this very kind of Nietzschean sense of the, this, this need to, um, to overcome decadence was, you know, it was very deeply part of his whole project. But you know, the other remarkable thing, which, I mean, it ties into Bap's sort of um, affection for animals, actually, because, you know, the, the, the fascinating thing about this museum is full of these taxidermy dioramas, right? And Roosevelt and several of the other kind of figures involved in creating the museum would go on these hunting trips to Africa. And these guys, you know, they were all conservationists, right? They were all deeply concerned. And Roosevelt famously, right, of course, creates the national park system and so on. But they did still go and hunt these, um, you know, they hunted lions, they hunted elephants and other, you know, African species in order to kind of reenact this, in a way, this kind of primordial battle um, between man and nature. Hmm. And yet they were also deeply concerned with, you know, uh, with conserving these animals, right? So they would, they would actually go and they would, they would find, you know, that th th some of these uh, specimens that you see on display in the dioramas were personally collected by these people, right? They would go and find the most beautiful mountain gorilla they could find. Um, and they would kill, you know, the, the sort of big male silverback. Um, this is the, the probably most famous diorama. They would kill it. And it was, it was kind of uh, understood by them and experienced as this kind of myth, this return to this kind of mythic primordial conflict um, that, that kind of returned them to this, this ancestral moment of sort of humanity um, struggling against nature. Mm. And so that they were, you know, on one hand, they were doing something that I guess today we would find very callous, right? And if, you know, there have been incidents of like these rich guys who will go on these hunting safari, these illegal hunting safari tours, and then they get pilloried on the internet, right? But a hundred years ago, this is pretty common. Mm. Um, but what's interesting is the guys who did that were also most invested in conservation. Mm. So they have, they have this kind of odd, um, you know, on one hand, this desire to embody the kind of violent warrior archetype, um, sort of subduing nature, 
But on the other hand, they were also deeply invested in, in conservation. And so they had that kind of effect, that affection towards animals that, as you noted, is a kind of feature of these, um, you know, not only that, but other other accounts in that that realm of, of Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think to try and attempt do my own sort of attempt at transvaluation, I actually think that BAP is probably right about the sort of natural drive of young men, right, mm -hmm. towards yeah. um, this kind of, towards violence, towards um, intense competitiveness, but also combined with deep attachment to to men who you consider your brothers, yeah. you know, all this stuff that he describes very vividly. Um, I think that he is, and also this thing he's always talking about in um, Bronze Age Mindset about sort of wanting space to roam and the kind of like, the, like the vigor of the young man who wants to go out and make his claim on the world. I think that he's describing something that is very deep rooted in young men. I think it's probably much less deep rooted in old men and I, or, or even middle-aged men, and I, and I, and I think that his advice to, you know, let's say his twenty-something readers who work in DC or London in politics jobs, right, advising them against basically growing up and becoming fathers and husbands, I think is unwise. I don't think that's good advice to give to a young man. But I think that yeah. he's capturing something very true. And I think to some extent, yes, that that spirit is suppressed in our unusually feminized culture where, you know, for instance, we disapprove of hunting. Yeah. Which is a very traditionally masculine thing and is now stigmatized, at least in certain expressions of it stigmatized. You know, I think he's probably right that that that, that force is being civilized. Uh, it's, well, OK, <laughs> to bring to raise Freud. Right. I think that he's right that that is being suppressed. I also think that actually the suppression of that instinct is necessary for civilization. Right. Be because actually, yes, there's a kind of vigorous beauty, you know, to that kind of male drive and it can produce a lot of good things. It also is incredibly dangerous. And you don't want, I, I, <laughs> okay, I don't want, maybe he wants, I don't want bands of kind of marauding pirates like <laughs> threatening my home and family, which has historically often been a threat to one's home and family. And we, we're unusual in not, not in living much safer lives. And I think that's a good thing. And yes, it might result in young men feeling a sense of frustration, which is why I think BAP has found such an audience. But I think, but I think maybe it's, good and necessary yeah i agree uh <laughs> and and i think you know all you have to do is kind of look at and it's it's similar to certain things you can say on the left it's like look at the parts of the world where they've actually sort of abolished the police and you yeah. don't you don't actually want to live there <laughs> or, where, yeah. or where there are no police like there is no <laughs> yeah, so like you don't actually want to live there interesting horseshoe theory everyone's yeah everyone wants to uh defund the police at both ends of the political spectrum and similarly, no one really wants a, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there are parts of the world where there are bands of marauding pirates. Yeah, like um, Somalia. You know, it exactly. sounds terrible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not good. Um, yeah. and, and it's notable that, again, none of these, um, you know, that, that if, if, you know, I, 
nobody is actually voting with their feet on behalf of that kind of a lifestyle by, mm. you know, again, I mean, he, he even gives you kind of relatively recent examples of these, these guys who, uh, you know, became sort of mercenaries in Africa. Um, I'm, I mean, if I, I imagine if there were cases of, of people sort of inspired by his ideas to, to do that, then we would probably hear about them, but you know, I have not. <laughs> and it would make, so, it'd make for a great feature. <laughs> yeah, sure. But yeah. you know, the, 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 and the, and the reality is like, there, there's a good reason for that, which is that, and the, and the, you know, this is again, where the sort of, um, and, and let me, uh, you know, maybe even more controversially, you know, the, the other thing that I think is kind of interesting here is like the values that, that he seems to be advocating. You could argue that in the U S the demographic group that is most, in line with those values is, is the one that they tend to demonize the most, right. Which is young black men, right. Mm. That, I mean, and my friend, um, Justin Murphy pointed this out at some point, right. Like these guys who are sort of all about, you know, you've got to amp up your testosterone and stuff like that. Well, I mean, basically uh, if you want to see what sort of high T behavior looks like, Mm. you know go to areas of chicago where there's like gangland killings every yeah yeah it's the gangster that they're basically idealizing yeah right yeah. and and sort of you know the the modern equivalent of this kind of unattached barbarian male who you know kind of fathers children but has no responsibility for them like we can find that out there it's just it happens that because all these people are you know virulently anti-black racists you know that it's 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 actually in the culture that they most demonize that that arguably you can find that and you know when you point this out to them it's kind of like well but you know they're they're not producing any uh, you know they're not producing any greatness they're just engaged in stupid pointless violence and it's like okay well I mean that's that's kind of interesting as well because then um, you know the idea here is that somehow um, and and I think there is sometimes a kind of bait and switch right and I and this is maybe and. Uh, here, I'm, I'm just going to veer off course for a second here, which is to say, you know, I feel like in some sense I recognize uh, Bronze Age pervert or, or Alamaru. Um, you know, he grew up in a suburb of Boston. Um, I grew up in a suburb of New York City, um, you know, among sort of highly educated people. Um, I think his maybe his father worked in university. So did mine. Um so like I, I basically feel like I know the world that he grew up in. I mean, he's he was originally born in and grew up in Romania, but um, for the first ten or so years of his life. But you know, many of my friends who who I grew up with had similar backgrounds to that. Um, you know, I had a neighbor down the street who was one of my best friends as a kid, who was his family had just migrated from Romania. So like, you know, I, I feel like I recognize the world that he comes out of. And then the second way in which I recognize him is actually. Um, I also went and sort of lived as an expat in Latin America for a few years, right, um, in, in my 20s. Um, and, and he seems to live primarily in Latin America, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I find this kind of interesting, like, that, that you know, if, if you just kind of break down his lifestyle, it's, it's not, and his background, it's, like, not, not at all unfamiliar to me, right? So then the interesting thing is, like, how you, how you become him, kind of, you know, from that background. And, and the wood piece definitely gets into that, right? Mm. But then, you know, the question is, okay, is this, is, is the idea that um, the payoff of all of this kind of horror and violence that is being exalted here, 
is some kind of achievement of high culture, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's sort of you know in part what I don't see, um, you know that I don't I don't see the kind of discipline or seriousness that that I would that I would take to be necessary for that. Um, I I think you know I I agree that our our high culture is quite degraded today, mm-hmm. and you know that may have something to do with with the kind of um, decadence generated by a kind of safetyism, like so mm-hmm. to that extent, I might accept the analysis. Mm-hmm. But you know, then the other thing I find interesting, and, and maybe this gets into the sinister part, is you know if you look at sort of other people he he has stated admiration for, you know as and and the other thing that he he um, talks about in the the dissertation is the the relationship between philosophy and tyranny. Tyranny he takes as you know the form taken by this kind of brutal rule of these superior types, right? Um, by which they have to. They have to kind of engage in immense sort of brutality in order to um, to stem the tide of sort of inherited custom and you know cultural forces that threaten to bring them down, right? So they have to install tyranny in order to um, forestall that that event at least temporarily. And uh, you know the, then the contemporary the sort of modern tyrannies that he seems to admire are basically the sort of military dictatorships of Latin America, which he talks about quite a bit, right? And the only thing I'll say there is like, you know, they certainly, uh, you know, they, they fit the bill in one respect, right? They're basically dictatorships on behalf of, um, you know, basically a kind of hereditary elite of, of mostly European descended, um, you know, p- you know, people descended from conquerors, right? Um, and he does talk about the conquistadors quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they, they were, uh, you know, they, they were attempts to kind of shore up the power of this hereditary elite against the, the masses, basically, you know, which were which were sort of demanding a more egalitarian order at the time. And, um, you know, the, the only problem here is you do see a lot of, uh, you know, plenty of brutality and, and violence. But what you don't see much of is is uh, sort of efflorescence of high culture, right? Mm, you you yeah. just get the, you get the tyranny, but you don't get the philosophy. You don't get the high culture. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of what, um, what strikes me about this, right? That, that supposedly the payoff and the thing that distinguishes this project from just kind of idealizing gangbangers and, you know, uh, Somali pirates or whatever is this kind of idea that it's ultimately about beauty and culture and, and you know the heights of of artistic and and intellectual achievement, mm-hmm. but then the actual things that are being idealized are, you know, these Latin American countries where, you know, basically the the cultures the cultures that came out of those periods are widely understood, you know, including by the people themselves as mediocre and and offering nothing of interest, and all of them were in, entirely, you know, th- these cultures became entirely Americanized in that period, right? But in fact. Mm-hmm you know, the, the culture that they, that they drew from and looked up to was that of a, a more democratic country, ironically. You've just finished listening to the first part of this episode. It's not over yet. There's an extra half an hour or so, which is um, behind the paywall, which you can access at louiseperry.substack.com and where you can also find bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Every paid subscription makes an enormous difference to my ability to produce the show, to, to pay my producers, to do all the things necessary to put out a regular podcast. If you're not able to sign up for a paid subscription, but you value what we're doing, 
You can support the show in other ways. You can tell people about it. The word of mouth factor is really important. You can rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can uh, like the videos on YouTube. All of these things make an enormous difference to my ability to grow the show. Thank you so much. <laughs>